Welcome to Moving the Needle, where we highlight innovators doing needle-moving sh** to create generational wealth and strengthen America's inclusive competitiveness. We're excited to bring you this episode, and we couldn't do it without the support of our sponsors. Live Oak Bank is on a mission to be America's small business bank and has the privilege of helping thousands of passionate, driven entrepreneurs turn their dreams into reality. These small business owners aren't in it for the fortune or the fame. They're in it to make a difference, just like Live Oak. As the top SBA 7A lender in the nation, Live Oak works tirelessly to treat every customer like they are the only customer. Going above and beyond is simply how Live Oak operates. They strive to deliver an experience different than what you typically expect from a bank. Their customers remain at the center of everything. You can learn more at liveoakbank.com. All right, let's get to the show. The creation of five jobs on the whole doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you're creating five jobs in a community of 500 people, that's fundamentally different than creating the five jobs in a community of 500,000 people. And so the context is really important when we talk about measurement tools and scale and the work that we're trying to do. What are we actually trying to accomplish? And how do we make sure that communities are centered in those conversations? Welcome to Moving the Needle a fresh new podcast that explores how social innovators and problem solvers are doing transformative work in cities and rural communities to create new pathways for generational wealth creation. This is Jonathan Hollifield. And I'm Christopher Gergen. As your co-hosts, we're here to lift up solutions that are giving us hope and can light the way for policymakers, community leaders, philanthropists, private investors, and engaged citizens who care about addressing longstanding economic inequities. Christopher, today we welcome Nathan Oley, President and CEO of the International Economic Development Council, a nonprofit, nonpartisan membership organization serving economic development professionals. IED sees over 4,000 members help create the best on-the-ground conditions in their regions throughout the world for high-quality jobs, vibrant communities, and improved quality of life. You know, Nathan is such a great guest, Jonathan, and I'm thrilled that he's now joining us on Moving the Needle. I'm excited to talk to him specifically about the evolution of economic development and the communities that are getting it right and what's in IEDC's Equitable Economic Playbook. Definitely. And I'm proud to say that Nathan and I are homeboys from the great state of Michigan. Let me give a quick background on Nathan's economic development journey. It all started as a junior at Michigan State University, where he got an internship in Governor Jennifer Granholm's office and then stayed on after he graduated. He was the trip director for the governor and traveled with her to every appointment throughout the state. And then he and his wife decided to start a family. And Nathan didn't want that travel schedule any longer. I went to the governor and said, I want to stay engaged, but I can't do this. What what can I do to be helpful? 
And it was 2007, just as Michigan was starting to get into the recession. And she said, we need really good people in economic development. And I said, I don't know what economic development is, but I'm happy to help. And so that that was the start of my journey. I went over to the Michigan Economic Development Corporation and spent five years in the heart of the recession working on state level uh, economic development issues. And that eventually led me to Washington, D.C. I, I took a job in the federal family at the U.S. Economic Development Administration. Nathan then ran an organization called the Rural Community Assistance Partnership. And we'll circle back on rural innovation a little bit later because it's such a critical part of the economic inclusion conversation. Nathan was at RCAP for five years before recently becoming president and CEO of the IEDC in 2022. And through his economic development career, one thing he's noticed is that it is ever evolving. The connectedness between the things we might have typically called economic development and the things that maybe economic development kind of felt were ancillary in the past are actually being brought together. So we're, it, it is about connecting workforce development. It is about connecting community development. It's about connecting housing and infrastructure, water, wastewater, or broadband access. It is about ensuring that all of those conversations are true connections and that you can't operate in the silo. You can't think of yourself just as an economic developer. You can't think of others as not part of the economic development ecosystem. It is about bringing people together, ensuring that whatever approaches and systems and and programs that we're putting together really do address a holistic viewpoint of what the needs are of a community and how do you drive that opportunity. So it can't just be a conversation around childcare or a conversation around affordable housing or a conversation around water wastewater access. All of those things are interrelated, and that's a difficult thing to bring together. It's difficult to host those conversations and show up at those conversations. But if we truly want to drive inclusive growth, it has to be that systematic change. I want to jump in on that as well. Um, equitable economic development, underserved, underestimated communities. To pick up on Christopher's point, proliferation of programs. I think we've come to call it uh, programs rich, systems poor, as a matter of fact. As you see the evolution of the economic development field, I'm seeing less evidence of an evolution of community infrastructure along with the field. Am I getting the sense that you're getting or are you getting a better sense? So I think it's happening in pockets, if that makes sense. It's certainly not happened everywhere, but there are absolutely places where where it is truly happening in a deep and intentional way. I think, you know, one of, especially in this moment where we've got, especially here in the United States, this inflow of, of federal funding and opportunities that exist. I think what we're seeing is a result of not doing the right work 10 years ago to prepare, especially those distressed communities, to be able to access those funds now. And I think it's imperative for us not only to recognize that and acknowledge that and understand it, but also start attacking some of those issues and opportunities now so that those communities aren't further left behind five years from now or 10 years from now. How do we make sure that we are truly building capacity? How are we ensuring that when we talk about water, wastewater access, you know, there's 1.5 million Americans that don't have access to safe drinking water today. Most Americans would never consider that a possibility, but it's a true fact. And a lot of those places are really small places uh, across the country. And certainly there are big places like Jackson, Mississippi is a great example of that. Flint, Michigan, Jonathan, you know, from our home state, right. obviously confronted these issues. 
And what we what we didn't do 10 years ago was was really think about how do we build the capacity of those communities to make that interconnection between infrastructure and economic development and housing and other issues, because it's difficult when you are a low capacity community or, or you know, extreme poverty community, you don't have the resources, you don't have the people resources, the the financial resources, or the tools or understanding necessarily how to make that interconnection just happen. And so we need to make sure that in today's day and age, that we're building those tools, those resources, and and thinking about the capacity of those communities to really ensure that those conversations are happening, those connections are being built. You know, just having this conversation with the former head of the SBA, Small Business Administration, Chris Pilkerton, who was really thinking about what have we learned from COVID in terms of community responsiveness to the stress of COVID on our local economic ecosystems. And are we going to carry those ideas and lessons forward so that we are better prepared? for the next disruption. Uh, how, do you, how do you think we're doing on that one? Um, my sense I have is that we went into crisis mode and we, we deployed a whole bunch of resources like uh, PPP and, and other types of tools to be able to try to get us through the immediate crisis and immediate response. But it does not seem like we're continuing to think through what a true resilience model might look like within these communities and and continue to foster these stronger systemic approaches where 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 do you see that happening i mean again maybe pockets and if there are pockets maybe if you could point to a couple of specific examples where you think a couple of communities are really getting it right uh, but i'd also love to think more holistically is what can we do to be able to make sure that we are better prepared going forward and we have a more resilient economic infrastructure, to, to Jonathan's point? I think to me, the places that are doing it right right now are taking regional approaches. They are not just thinking about their own community. They're thinking about all the communities that surround them, the region that they are a part of, and how they can work and collaborate with one another. Those are really difficult things to build. Those connections, those relationships, and the actual system and process behind making that happen and doing it in a sustainable way, it, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of trust building. And quite frankly, that trust can be broken a lot more quickly than it can be built. And so that's where I see the places that are that are really building up that sustainability and resilience strategy are those that are thinking regionally and not just in the silo of their own community and what benefits them. Now that in many ways cuts across what you know economic development has always thought about uh, in the true sense of it. It's been a competition and competition is, is good. Competition is part of what we do, but collaboration has to be built into this process in a much more intentional and strategic way. It has to be the focus of every community about how do they how do they help their own thrive, but how do they help others thrive as well? And it seems counterintuitive to think of it that way, but as you start to see results of that kind of regional approach happening, you actually see a much more inclusive strategy developing in communities and in regions, and it's benefiting those communities. It's, it's actually giving them a leg up, and I'll give you a great example. So U.S. Economic Development Administration did the Build Back Better Challenge, which was this huge influx of funding, but it was really focused on regional collaboration. And 
be what it may, every federal opportunity is this way. When a new federal opportunity comes up, you've got 45 days to respond and to get something in. And if you hadn't done the work to build the right collaborations and regional approaches on the front end, there was no way that you were going to be able to be competitive with those that had spent three years, five years, even even just one year focused on, on building these regional approaches. And so one, one piece of this is it is really important for states and federal partners to stress that this is an important piece. The other thing that we are kind of myopic about in this moment is we think about, we've got this huge influx of funding. We've got to get the funding out the door. We've got to get it to communities. We've got to make sure that communities access this. But it is, in many cases, a one-time infusion of cash. And it is not long-term sustained funding for these communities. And in many cases, it is infrastructure dollars going out. So build your water water plant or build broadband access to communities. But it's not necessarily thinking about the long-term sustainability of those projects and of the people that are affected by it. And so we actually, in the United States, do this much better from an international perspective. USAID takes a long-term, you know, often a five-year approach where you have multiple funding cycles that fund a region of the world or a specific region in a country for, you know, uh, they get funding every year for five years. We don't necessarily take that approach here in the U.S. in the way that we think about it. And so the regional collaboration piece is is crucial. Thinking about long-term sustainability and resilience and the funding models that actually support that approach are really critical. Drilling down on that observation experience, Nathan, the practices can be there and we can miss the mark, i.e. the resilience is not in the infrastructure unless you consider the people, the infrastructure. Um, Is there a a better or a higher, more useful renewable energy than people? And for communities that just continue to struggle and can't quite put it together, can't quite draw down top resources. Are you seeing evidence that that might be changing? And if there are communities you can call out as examples, we'd welcome to hear about them as well, where where people are really the center of the collaboration and not an afterthought. There's a such thing as collaboration for the sake of collaboration. There's there's no doubt. I, I think there certainly are examples of that, Jonathan. I, I think of Southern Texas, uh, McAllen, for example. It's, it's an Air Force base, obviously, which drives a huge part of the economic prosperity. But they are thinking about the region around them and how that how the base uh, affects their own community and the region around it, but also how do they make sure they diversify their their economic opportunities for the people that surround their area. Um, Josh Mejia is is leading the McAllen Chamber, and they're doing some really innovative community conversations and engaging in a in a much deeper way with a, a whole subset of of people across the community, not just those that they typically talk to. So that's one example where I would say. It's being done really well, and, and there's some innovative things that are happening from that approach. I would also tell you that even in, in our home state, Jonathan, you, you look at Detroit, um, and I've spent a lot of time in Detroit. I served as the deputy director of the Detroit Federal Working Group right after the city went into bankruptcy. Um, and there were all these investments happening in downtown, midtown Detroit, but not in the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And the neighborhoods, quite frankly, got left behind. Many of the same things we've seen in lots of other cities across the country. And we've started to see an evolution in Detroit. I don't think it's quite there yet, but we've started to see a little bit of a different approach, not just in the city, but also in the region itself. The 
to try and figure out, you know, how do you drive opportunity? So Tech Town in Detroit is doing some really innovative, cool things around entrepreneurship and driving small business growth. And they're actually focused a lot of their approaches not on Midtown, where a lot of the hub of activity is happening, but in those outer land areas of the city. And so there are absolutely examples of where this is happening. There are also examples where it's not happening and we're still exacerbating the problems that we've seen in the past. But where we can lift up and highlight those really unique and 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 cool and innovative new approaches, we, we need to do that. Yeah, no, to build on that, you know, one of the things that Jonathan and I spend quite a bit of time thinking about is what's the approach? How do how do communities get aligned uh, on a an agreed upon set of outcomes so that everybody agrees what does success look like, and then thinks about the strategies to be able to get there. Uh, and and brings a diverse, community-driven, cross-sector approach to trying to get to those strategies that are really community-first strategies. And I love the you know the couple of examples that you've used. And it was interesting even to watch the Detroit process unfold. One of the catalysts for that was philanthropic capital to say, "Hey, oh, we want to try to drive." we want to get everybody to agree that we need to be able to bring other neighborhoods that have not been included so far in the, in the downtown and midtown renaissance into the future of Detroit's economy. Um, so it was interesting to watch how all that happens. I want to highlight something there in particular. So Detroit's a great example of this. And I spent a lot of time in Detroit uh, and, and saw this firsthand. I actually think philanthropy's biggest Superpower is not the money they provide. It is the convening power. That ah, yes, because that is Boom. where people come to the table. When when a Kresge Foundation in yes. Detroit calls and says, "We want you at this conversation," people show up. Now they show up because they know about the money. But the convening power is right. truly where well that opportunity is for philanthropy, especially from a community perspective. One hundred percent. And I actually think that's true of public money too, and public the public convening power. Right? If you're able to get the mayor, the governor to bring people together, uh, it makes a difference in terms of who comes to the table, but making sure that that table, again, is diversely representative. Uh, and, uh, and that's critical. Let's take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by SHRM. Our partners at SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, have created better workplaces by supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the world of work and society. It's why they developed the Together Forward at Work initiative to drive racial inequity out of the workplace. It's why Sherm made a capital commitment to support minority-owned business enterprises. And it's why they are partnering with us at Moving the Needle to support the call for inclusive economic development opportunities. Together, we can help workers realize their full potential in their work and in every aspect of their lives. So you can learn more at Sherm.org. That's S-H-R-M dot org. Okay, back to the show. Let's get back to moving the needle. So within the context of IEDC, you've got 5,000 plus economic development professionals. This has not been the traditional way that economic development has operated. Economic development mostly has been, let's go try to recruit 
the big companies into the community, and it's very focused on this competitive prospect, small table, very targeted at recruitment. But flipping the script to say, how do we actually think about a set of regional community and economic development goals is different. So how is IEDC thinking about, you do a lot of professional development, how do you think about the professional development of these economic developers so they are thinking differently about having that convening authority, bringing together cross-sector leaders from diverse backgrounds, uh, and really taking a regional approach that's not exclusively focused on recruiting the next big, big elephant? Yeah, I mean, the the smokestack chasing is kind of the big shiny element, right? That's always existed in economic development. And this is not to say that that's not an important part of economic development, because it absolutely is. But it's also recognition that it's not the only approach. And we need to be thinking about the broad spectrum of economic development. COVID, you know, obviously highlighted the need to talk about retention and expansion. Uh, and especially in small communities, highlighted the need to talk about small business growth and opportunity. And how do we you know, create an ecosystem that allows for small business owners to grow and thrive. Because we know that the the revenues that are generated by that are reinvested in the community in a much higher scale than it is even in larger companies, quite frankly. So for us, we back in January 2021, we launched the Equitable and Economic Development Playbook. It is a, a toolkit for economic developers to think about how do they drive more equitable economic outcomes. And there's some specific pieces in there. Part of it is acknowledging the programs and processes that maybe exacerbated that dichotomy between those that have it and those that, that do not have it, both acknowledging what those were and what the results of those were, but also then starting to engage with the community that has been left behind in the past. And to me, it's not just hosting them and inviting them to our conversation. It is showing up at their conversations. And that's where the real, you know, uh, the real opportunity is in this work is to actually show up to identify and ask what other priorities are, what do they want, what do they need, and actually then to help them along that process. And it's not, it's not, I shouldn't say help them because they can help themselves, That's right. but provide the opportunity to provide the space and certainly where there's opportunities to bring resources to do so. And the other really crucial component of that is measuring that. So how do we actually measure that we're driving equitable growth? What do we look at? Typically in economic development, that's been about jobs and investment. And those are always going to be a part of the puzzle. But we also have to think a little bit differently about the context around those measurements and what other measurement tools should be using. And I'll give you an example from a small community perspective. If we're talking about scale and big projects, the creation of five jobs on the whole doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you're creating five jobs in a community of 500 people, that's fundamentally different than creating the five jobs in a community of 500,000 people. And so the context is really important when we talk about measurement tools and scale and the work that we're trying to do. What are we actually trying to accomplish and how do we make sure that communities are centered in those conversations? You know, uh, Nathan, uh, the evolution of the talent that's increasingly attracted to economic development. I'm interested in if you're seeing different kinds of backgrounds gain interest from different parts of our community. You know the old model. We all know the old model, and that's not the model for the future as well. And when, as you describe that, also interested, you said some things about listening. 
You know, when it comes to innovation in particular, broadly defined, all the top innovation economic stuff, it's invisible. It's invisible unless you're in it. And if we're only listening and not offering, we may stay in the same cycle that we've been in for the past three generations. What's our role to offer greater possibilities? Open that aperture of imagination. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, we're absolutely seeing a different mindset for young people that are coming to economic development. I really do think the service orientation of this work is what attracts the younger generation to whatever work they're doing. I think if you can tell them and explain to them the why of the work and the impact of the work, you're going to excite them and you're going to get them engaged. I think there's also a piece of this that technology is driving young people into economic development in ways that we haven't seen in the past. Even things like GIS mapping of a community like that, that excites people and gives a visual aspect to the work that, as you talked about earlier, Jonathan, is often invisible uh, to, to many people. And so thinking about how we communicate the storytelling aspect of the work is really critical and something that barely anyone pays attention to that, that excites young people. The technology side, the service orientation, all of those things are a little bit different perspective for what might bring people into economic development. There's certainly... You know, some of the tried and true things that, that, that brought a lot of us into economic development still exist. But as we think about this next generation of leaders, and quite frankly, maybe the most important part of that is giving them a pathway to lead mm. and understanding that there truly is a pathway for them to lead is really critical. We know that we've got over the next 10 years, we've got a huge population of folks that are going to retire out of economic development. And if we don't spend the time now providing leadership opportunities to those young people and those emerging leaders in the field, then we're doing ourselves and certainly the communities we all serve a, a disservice. And, and that's one thing that I think about almost every day. Going back to your question about listening, Jonathan, I, it, it is really critical to me. I've been in this, in this role for a year and almost all of my time has been spent in listening mode and engaging. And it is really important for us to get outside of those, those lanes of, of input and feedback that we always typically get. So there's, there's lots of ways that, that someone in my role might typically get input, input into what we're doing well and what we're not doing well. I try my best to find new avenues, new opportunities to not only engage those that we have always typically engaged, but ensure that the voices of others are in that process. So every Friday, I block out an hour to an hour and a half of my time to do calls to randomized members. So I ask my team for just a list of randomized members. There's no rhyme or reason behind it. And I make phone calls to people. And not every day do I actually get people to pick up. But when I do, it's, it's a really unique opportunity for people that may never have an opportunity to truly provide input up to leadership of a, a membership association, you know, some insight into what they're feeling, what they want, what do they desire, and, and what are we doing to help improve the, their own lives, their community's lives, and certainly of the, the work that they're trying to do. And the same thing is true in, at the community level. If you're not willing to create space for conversations for those that might not typically have access, then, then we're really missing the mark. I love the idea of being able to not only think about where there are immediate challenges, but looking 5, 10, 15 years out to the field of economic development. Because Jonathan, like you, it would be awesome if we were able to look out 10 to 15 years from now and that the field of economic development has fundamentally changed to be able to be much more representative, that the skill set is much more around collaboration 
listening, community-driven regional approaches, data-driven, leveraging technology in really uh, distinct and interesting ways. Um, I love where that's going. So in that spirit, how is IEDC thinking about that? Are you all starting to establish collaborative partnerships and relationships on the talent pipeline? And can you give us a couple of examples of that? Yeah, we are. And and you will hear the word partnership and collaboration from me a lot because it's just what it's number one, what I enjoy doing the most, what I'm probably the best at. But also I do feel it's really important for us as an organization that is representing membership from across the world in this field to not only speak it, to, but to live it. And so building those partnerships and, and in some cases, non-traditional partnerships is going to be really crucial to our work. I'll give you a great example of how we're thinking about kind of that next generation and certainly also serving those communities that that really you know have high levels of distress. So we are launching uh, just in, in a few months, actually, a brand new program called the Economic Recovery Corps. This is both a partnership and an opportunity to drive change locally and regionally. So the partnership side, we built a partnership with six different partners to help launch this program. So we're working with the National Association of Counties, the National Association of Development Organizations, the National League of Cities, the International City and County Managers Association, the Regional Accelerator and Innovation Network, and the Center on Rural Innovation. All six plus the IDC are coming together to launch this program with two main goals. One is to actually build capacity in local communities that are exhibiting some level of distress, and that is urban, rural, tribal, you name it, across the United States. And we're going to embed at least 68 fellows directly into areas that are that are exhibiting distress to help them build their own capacity from an economic development perspective. It'll be a two and a half year fellowship that is fully paid for by our program. So communities are not going to have to pay out of their pocket to have these fellows. They're going to have to provide the right structure and framework for those fellows to actually be embedded in the economic development approaches and planning in their region, but they're not going to have to pay the, the 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 stipends or the salaries for those individuals. That will be paid for through through IDC and through our partners. The second goal of that program is, is not only to create capacity in those communities, but also to start to create a pipeline of the next generation of leaders in economic development. So those 68 fellows are going to be built into a cohort model where they're learning from one another, they're working with one another, and they're they're really thinking about what the future of economic development, especially for these distressed communities, might be, should be, can be, hopefully will be in the future. And this, the hope and goal is that this is not the only time, right, that we have multiple levels of these fellowships. And so over time, we're going to be developing hopefully thousands of economic developers that are early to mid-career folks to really both build capacity, but also, you know, really give them an opportunity to lead on what the future of economic development is. It's fantastic. You know, um, one of our guests uh, was one of your friends, as well as ours, uh, Assistant Secretary uh, Alejandro Castile at EDA. And we asked a similar question about fostering collaboration, and you touched on it, but your percept, your um, description was more of effect of timing. Well, for her, it was a requirement for the recompete grant and tech hubs and, the, and those kinds of opportunities. Are you seeing evidence of philanthropy or even local stakeholders to really incent or require the kind of collaboration? Are we getting that material in this primary objective? Yeah, I'm going to add real quick. How do we sustain it? So, you know, how do we? How is it happening? And then how do we sustain it? Because once this federal 
you know, flood of resources is, is working through our system. Where are we going to be on the other side? Are we going to, are we going to see the move, the, the, the needle really moving towards this kind of sustained collaboration? Yeah. So when I talk about the carrot and the stick, I actually think it's not an either or, it's a yes and. Both mm. are necessary yeah. because you have to have, at the front end of something like this, you have to have the requirement, as Alejandra would, would have spoken, to to facilitate this happening because the money is where, the you know, the money is r- really what drives conversations on the front end of this because otherwise people say, well, why would I want to spend the time and effort to do that if it's not actually going to lead to anything? So having federal partners like EDA and, and others that are actually requiring it is a really important step in this process. The second piece of that, though, is the storytelling aspect that I, that I talked about a little bit earlier. You have to be able to showcase and highlight how this actually benefited communities and regions and especially those that have been at the, the outskirts of, of economic opportunity in the past. You've got to both lift up stories and show other communities why this is important and what did it lead to on, on behalf of the communities that actually underwent this work. And, and that, to me, is a little bit of the, of the carrot piece of, mm-hmm. of actually showing people why this is important and, and how it helps. These are really difficult things. And I'll give you a great example. When I was at RCAP and talking about rural communities, I got asked at a conference, you know, what would be one controversial thing that you would recommend that would, you know, that would drive economic Mm. opportunity? And I said, get rid of high school football. Now, I don't believe we should get rid of high school football. I love high school football. But oftentimes those kinds of rivalries, especially in small communities, don't allow communities to work with one another because they think, oh, I can't, I can't work with those, you know, the team that I'm playing against next Friday and, and our, our ultimate rival, those really fundamental relationship pieces are really critical to, to driving this and, and incentivizing it and, and really ensuring that it does happen. And building relationships across communities is difficult because you get back to that, that old competition mindset as opposed to collaboration mindset. And so we've got to be willing to think about how do we both incentivize it and require it? And how do we also showcase and highlight why this is important and what has it meant to other communities that have undergone this process? Well, I would say about high school football is there must be a way to spin it forward and leverage the Friday night lights as a community collaborative opportunity versus abandoning or abandoning the high school football game. Yeah. That's just my perception. Well, I, and I, I, I want to be clear. I was not saying get rid of it. I was saying... If there's a controversial, if there's a controversial idea, that would be it, right? Especially in in small towns, especially. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, risk, right? When we talk about these things historically, yeah, underestimated, underserved, diverse communities. Oftentimes, their aspirations are relegated to the less competitive sectors of the economy. How are you know, the field, how is the field accommodating that and how is it evolving toward connecting to what we call inclusive competitiveness, where the nation is going, where the world is going and aligning our activities there versus the less competitive areas of the economy. It's all important. I'm not dismissing anything, but boy, those returns from those top opportunities are exponentially greater than other areas. Yeah, I think it's both a recognition of what does that mean and what does it look like and an understanding of, of what drives that. 
And in my mind, a lot of that centers around a community-centered approach, an asset-based approach to economic development. What are the assets and opportunities that exist in a community and how do we connect those to one another? A lot of that centers around entrepreneurship and small business growth. How do we make sure that we're providing opportunities that, that are going to generate wealth, but not just a financial wealth. It's going to create political wealth. It's going to create uh, connectedness that, 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 that leads to a broader set of wealth across a community and reinvests in the community as opposed to extracting money out of that community. So that's, that's what we've seen, whether you're talking in in highly densely populated areas or really remote areas, oftentimes the economic development approaches have been more extractive than they have extractive versus embedding wealth into those communities and revolving the wealth into those communities. Thinking through different financing models that are going to allow for that to happen. Because as you look at the, the banking infrastructure across the United States, in many of those communities, those high distress communities, there are no longer banking institutions. And so how do we think about CDFIs and other financing tools that can allow for technical assistance to come alongside financing and ensure that we're building capacity alongside the, the financial opportunities that are provided? How do we make sure that whatever economic development approaches are, are being taken are focused on the community and the needs of the broad set of the community? And also, you know, there's a really important difference between equity and equality in these conversations mm -hmm. and ensuring that we understand what equity means. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to have an equal share. Some, In some cases, different parts of the community are going to need more resources to get them to the same level as another part of the community and ensuring that we're driving those conversations, driving the opportunities to address those issues is really critical. No doubt, no doubt. Before Christopher weighs in, I want to close that point with another dimension of equity that we don't often talk about unless we're doing investing. Equity means ownership. And how are our new systems producing opportunities for individuals to own assets? In some cases, those are skills assets. That can open the door to the purchase of fixed assets. These are appreciating assets, old, old coaching from my uncles and grandfather and mom. You know, when you get that job, don't go out and buy a car, get you some property or a house, you know, appreciating assets. Well, skills are also appreciating assets. So we, we tend to talk about equity only in terms of even handedness and fairness. But boy, that ownership dimension, empowering new new people to own things that appreciate in value. And I don't know of a better thing than skills that grow over time, that earn greater incomes, that empower folks to purchase fixed assets. And that's a sure way, not the only way, but a sure way to wealth creation. Well, I totally agree, Jonathan. That's why you know professional development is such a huge part of the work that we do, ensuring that we're building the skills of people of all sizes, shapes, colors from different regions of the world, because those skills are things that transfer with you regardless of what you're doing or where you're going. So my thought is to try to now braid some of these ideas together uh, and use rural communities as an example of this. Uh, you know, we've talked a couple of different times the fact that you used to run the Rural Community Assistance Partnership, RCAP, and that's an example where a couple of things are, are unfolding. One relatively low capacity to be able to compete for smokestacks, but also to be able to compete for some of these federal resources uh, and to be able to 
try to be part of this competitive economy that Jonathan was just talking about. I was just meeting, for example, the North Carolina Biotechnology Center, which is a Build Back Better recipient, very competitive field. You see a lot of biotech activity here in the Triangle in North Carolina uh, and a couple of other metro areas in the state. But one of the real challenges here is how can you connect in the rural communities and have them participate in this competitive economy, build wealth, build skills, and, and actively compete. So how do we do that? I mean, how do we actually bring the rural communities into this inclusively competitive economy when they're already low capacity? It's a great question. And I think it starts with the the notion that it is not urban versus rural. Mm-hmm. We are not doing one thing at the exclusion of another. And a recognition that there are certainly pieces of that experience, urban, rural, that are very different, but there's also pieces that are very similar. And especially if we're talking about high distress areas, the things that you see in, in highly distressed regions, whether you're urban or rural, are pretty similar other than maybe the density and, and close access to some resources. But as we looked at COVID, for example, and we looked at the differentiation between access to grocery stores or medical facilities, the geographic dispersion there is very different between urban and rural. But the issues of access are still very present in both. And so we have to start the conversation with recognizing we are not saying you should focus on rural and not urban, or you should focus on urban and not rural. It is about actually understanding what are the needs of those communities and how do we ensure that the voices of those in those communities can help lead in those conversations. So that's where I get really concerned when we start talking about you should focus on rural or you should focus on urban or you should focus on tribal. Like we should be focused on all of those and they're all different and they're all going to require very different approaches in some cases. But if we don't spend the time engaging in the community themselves, we're never going to address the historic inequities that have existed between or among those those types of communities. And have you seen regions that have done a good job in terms of hub-spoke relationships between metro, hub, rural-spoke? So I think, you know, there's really some interesting things happened down in New Mexico, actually, around uh, the, the Santa Fe area, where obviously, you know, they've got a really interesting dichotomy down there of, of some really remote places. Certainly, you know, there's a lot of tribal representation in that area. And then you've got the city. I think they're doing some really interesting things about about regional approaches. I think probably where you're seeing most of the really deep relationships are actually rural to rural places. The, the regional collaboration that's happening among several small communities in a region. It is happening, certainly, in, in urban and rural, probably not as deeply as it's happening rural to rural, if that makes sense. Mm, that is that is interesting. And just one other, to now bring in the international perspective, you run IEDC, International Leads It. So often I feel like we, you used the term myopic earlier, we get a little myopic here in the United States where we're thinking very closely to what are their representative examples. But if you were to look at other uh, global communities that you feel like are really leading the charge that we should be paying attention to in terms of inclusive economic development, inclusive competitiveness, um, regional collaboration, any parts of the world that you would point to? 
Well, I'd actually tell you Australia is doing some really interesting things. They're certainly not the area that you would normally think of in this space. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Australia as a continent has every type of, of climate, every type of size of community that, that you could ever imagine. And they're doing some really interesting things to try and bring people together and bring regions together across across that country. I would say in the EU, they're doing some interesting things specifically around climate change and its impacts on economic development. That is when I'm talking to my EU counterparts, like that's the number one issue they're talking about every single day is around the climate and climate impacts and economic development. And they've done some really interesting things regionally to start to try and address those issues. You know, it's it's fascinating because economic development looks and feels differently in every region. If you're in if you're in Africa, it's different than South America, which is different than Southeast Asia, which is different than Australia. And there are but there are similarities. And what we think about and what we're trying to build out over time here is tools and resources that can be tailored to the needs of those regions. So there are always going to be some similarities that exist in economic development. And so we know there are tools and resources that we have developed whether it's U.S.-based or whether it's EU-based or, or Canadian-based, et cetera, that can be tailored to the needs of other regions of the world. We haven't always been willing to allow that to happen. And so it's about building relationships and partnerships in those countries, in those regions, to better understand how they approach this work, what, what tools and resources do they need, and how can we be a partner in helping to build that. It's never about we have the right answer for you. It's about what are you seeing and needing and developing and if we have tools and resources that we can take and you can you can tailor to your needs, that's really where I think the opportunity is for us as an organization to be a better and more deep partner with those with those partners across the world. That's very um, insightful. And I frankly think that's absolutely spot on. Let me bring it back to the states. We're going to shift into some lighter questions for you, uh, Nathan. But before we do so. Is there a path for our country to sustain prosperity, continuously improve quality of life for those of us who are here without more contributors in our economy? Is it possible? Some people can say we were in a post-World War II, we were the global economic behemoth, and we did that largely with one hand tied behind our back. Is that even possible in the 21st century world? Or do we need both of these hands in the game? It's a great question. And I am not an economist. Uh, and, and I just want to, I think it is possible. I think that we need to make sure, though, that we are providing the right tools and resources, that we're not tying anyone's hand behind their back, that we are providing the flexible and tailored approaches to communities and ensuring that that whatever their needs are, that we can accelerate those opportunities, right? I mean, to me, it is, it is truly about being partners with communities and regions and, and understanding their needs and tailoring products, tools, resources to meet those needs. Well, I was just thinking about the equitable economic development playbook that you were talking about. It's those kinds of tools that ultimately allow more people to get in the game. And I, I don't think uh, that it is possible for a community to be able to effectively compete in the 21st century without having as many of its citizens and residents participating in the economy as possible. 
whether they've got a livable wage job, whether they are starting their own business, whether they are being part of the supply chain, whatever it may be, we can, we are not going to be able to effectively compete as a country unless we've got more people in the game. And that feels to me like the clarion call for the next generation of economic developers to say, one of you mentioned data earlier, to say, one of the things that I have to measure our regional success on is whether we've got more people starting businesses from all backgrounds and that we've got more people in livable wage jobs from all backgrounds and that they are in growing businesses and in jobs that are 21st century businesses and 21st century jobs in the traded sector economy, for example. And so that feels to me that you're, that, that is, that is one of the things that, and your new leadership of IDC, clearly you see it and really feels like a huge opportunity to be able to drive this organization forward to help on our country and the, frankly, the world sort of inclusive competitive stage. Any thoughts on that? I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that's exactly right. I think understanding that engaging a much broader set of folks in a community, providing them with the right opportunities, providing them, quite frankly, with, with the chance for them to identify what that opportunity is, right? I can't identify what that opportunity is. They're, they need to be the ones that are, that are at the table and driving those conversations. And we but need to you be there. Can, but, but, but you can offer where those opportunities may be invisible. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Say, hey, look, well, look, at, look at this data. Look at where this co- economy is going. You guys need to be competing for these op- for these kinds of opportunities. And you've got to be it. preparing your workforce for these kinds of opportunities. You've got to be fostering these regional collaboration around these opportunities. I agree. I think it's a listening game. But as Jonathan has mentioned a couple of different times, it's about contributing that information, contributing that data uh, so that people are coming from an informed perspective. As they think about how to how to more effectively compete, totally agree. Yeah. All right. Well, Christopher, you want to yeah make a couple of closing inquiries of our guests. <laughs> so, Nathan, one of the things we love to do is be able to uh, learn from our guests what you're learning about, uh, and also where how you're relaxing, how you are getting into your own mindset and vibe. So, the two questions we love to ask our guests is. One, are there two or three things that you're reading that you would recommend to our broader audience that you've really gotten a lot out of? And are there a couple things that you love to listen to when you're winding down or you're trying to get fired up, whatever it may be? It would be great to come, wrap us up into these, uh, into these answers. Yeah, actually, I've got this book right here next to me. It's called New Power. That's what I'm reading right now. It is, it is around driving power in a hyper-connected world and how you create opportunity for others to build their own power within that. And I'm reading it because to me, as an organization, we are at a really pivotal moment. And the opportunity ahead, if done right and intentionally and strategically, is going to provide opportunity for so many people across this world to both be embedded into the economic development field, but also to create opportunity in their own communities. And that's what, what excites me every day about waking up to do this work is that opportunity that I see ahead for not just the organization, but for the economic development field to move forward. Um, and so thinking through 
you know, what does change management look like from an organizational perspective, but also from a community perspective, because that is part of this job is really critical. And so wherever I can find really, you know, innovative ideas around how you help build that change and, and build power across a community as opposed to centralizing it in one area is really critical. To, to unplug a little bit, so I, I'm a huge sports nut. I'm a Chicago sports fan, even though I grew up in Michigan, Jonathan. Uh, my whole family's from Chicago. Uh, but I also coach basketball, I coach AAU basketball. So I'm, I'm at practice. In fact, I got practice tonight. Uh, and most weekends we're out on the road playing. Um, it's a great way for me to not just engage with my son, but but stay engaged with young people uh, in, in this world to understand what makes them tick um, and hopefully, obviously, inspire and build some skills for them in that in that same process. And then my family loves to go out to, uh, to Delaware, to the beach, to, to be by the ocean. So whenever we can in the summer, we're often in Delaware on the weekends trying to, to get away and just enjoy some time to relax the family. And, and what are you listening to while you do that? Are you, uh, you, you know, running on beaches or? <laughs> Depends whether my kids are with me or not. I, I'm a bit big podcast guy. So I'm listening to podcasts all the time. My kids don't like love that. the needle. You that's right. Tell, that's right. That's number one on your podcast list. That's so, exactly. But if the kids are in the car, podcasts are not their thing. So we're listening to music all the time and, and having fun with, with different genres of music. I, uh, I love that we just went and saw the movie Air as a family and, and oh. the nostalgia that came to me from listening to the 80s and 90s music that mm-hmm. I grew up with was was awesome. So, you know, trying to get our kids to open their ears to, to a whole spectrum of, of music is a lot of fun. Well done. Well done. Uh, Nathan, it has been a uh, pleasure to talk with you. We certainly hope that if we can be of support to IEDC and your leadership, Christopher and I would welcome chances to um, support what we think is a wonderful vision for this international body of economic developers. So we're on your team. We think um, that it's headed in a productive direction and thank you for your time, Christopher. Thank you, Nathan. Really appreciate you having us uh, in this conversation. And thanks again for your leadership. I think you guys are really doing super important work. So we're looking forward to tracking the progress over time. Well, thank thank you for all that you are doing uh, to move the needle forward uh, and, and appreciate the opportunity to be a part of it. That was Nathan Oley with the International Economic Development Council, which you can find at IEDC online.org. Thanks so much for listening to Moving the Needle. If what you heard resonates with your mission, do something about it. Leaving a rating and review and sharing our show with your network is greatly appreciated. But what we really want is for you to get involved and find a way to move the needle in your community. Moving the Needle is hosted by me, Jonathan Hollifield, and Christopher Gergen. Editing and production by Earfluence music from Bart Matthews, and cover art from Devin Lewis Designs. We are also particularly grateful for our sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Society for Human Resource Management, or SHRM. We hope each episode introduces you to leading-edge changemakers, informs you about what's possible, and inspires you to action. So get out there and do some needle-moving shit. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, we have a couple of books for you. 
The first one is written by me, Jonathan Hollifield, called The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, How Demographic Trends and Innovation Can Create Economic Prosperity for All Americans. In this book, I answer the question, can America win its economic future? The answer is an emphatic yes, but I have concerns. Our nation is facing unprecedented global economic challenges. Although the economic narrative of the 20th century in many ways served America well, it will not, indeed it cannot, meet the needs of the 21st century. Today, we need all hands on deck, particularly those who have not competed well in our nation's best opportunities, Blacks, Latinos, rural humans, and others. In this book, I lay out an exciting way forward for America to inclusively compete to win the future. That's the future economy and inclusive competitiveness, which you can find on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions. And I can tell you that Jonathan's book really is a great read and provides meaningful insights into the issues we all care about. And while we're at it, you may also really enjoy a book that I, Christopher Gergen, co-authored with Greg Vanerick called Life Entrepreneurs. Life Entrepreneurs, as you may find out, is a clarion call for those who are interested in integrating their lives and work with purpose and passion. In the book, we tell stories of people who have infused their life and work with energy, impact, and fulfillment. In writing Life Entrepreneurs, we had deep conversations with 55 life entrepreneurs who have intentionally and creatively designed their lives to be able to create truly extraordinary impact in the world and deeply fulfilling lives for themselves. We had a great time writing this book, and its lessons have impacted every aspect of my own life and the thousands of readers who have checked it out. So you can check out Life Entrepreneurs for yourself on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions.